Good evening. It's good to be with you this evening. Thank you, Brother Henry, for inviting me to come and um, be with you. We have good fellowship from time to time through the Westminster Fellowship. That's always uh, a blessing, and particularly a blessing to just meet with another company of God's people to bring God's word. And we're going to look tonight from uh, 1 Timothy and chapter 2. 1 Timothy and chapter 2. That's going to be the reading for today. That's on page 1177. I'm going to read the whole chapter and then I plan to uh, deal with the whole chapter, at least in outline form. We'll see how that goes. Um, but it's a relatively short, short chapter. It's good to read God's word as we've done already. So let's li- listen now to God's holy and infallible word. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Amen. So reads God's holy word. Just to say a little bit about my context in Hammersmith over in West London, uh, I would think that we're in many ways a very similar fellowship to your own in terms of size and the challenges that we face and trying to reach out uh, with the gospel. One thing we've started recently, which the Lord seems to be in and seems to be blessing Um, just going out at the moment every week, uh, weather permitting. We have a little table. We're there on King Street, which is the sort of central thoroughfare in Hammersmith, and we just have some Christian literature, and we try and engage people, talk to people. Um, I'm not really preaching as such. I'm 
I'd like to have a little crowd to preach to. Maybe I should preach and the crowd will come. I don't know. So that's where we need wisdom and we would really appreciate your prayers and your support uh, in that. And already in the church, well, I, w- I wouldn't say any of those people we've spoken to on the street have come in, but uh, already we've seen one or two folk coming in. And I think this is so often the way. You try and do something over there, doesn't seem to bear much fruit, and then something happens over there. And the Lord knows our hearts, he knows our desires, and he is kind and gracious to bless our feeble little efforts. So I would appreciate your prayers. That's every Thursday afternoon, 2 till 3. We're on the uh, King Street there in Hammersmith. Well, I'm... So glad to be with you in person tonight. I'm so glad I'm not speaking to you on a Zoom call. Um, Those days are still with us, and there are still many hangover effects from the time of lockdown. But it's good to get out of that and to move on, isn't it? Um, But there were also some good things that came out of that season, Uh, I certainly feel, looking back. One of them was, and I'll explain why in a minute, that... uh, I I joined Facebook during that period. And, uh, of course, immediately I discovered I had all these hundreds and hundreds of friends and uh, still don't know who half of them are. But but there we are. But there was a purpose in that so that I could use Facebook Live to preach to a particular church that had asked me to do so. They were without a pastor, so there was obviously a pressing need there and I was happy happy to help and it seemed so obvious to me that for a church under those circumstances it it would be so good to go back to 1 Timothy I'm now looking at 2 Timothy with that church but we went through the the five chapters of 1 Timothy over a few over a few months and uh, for me that was one of the standout moments of of the lockdown to be able to use this wonderful technology to bring God's word uh, in that sort of way. And that series uh, had a title, three little letters, F-F-M, Firm Foundations for Ministry. That's what I called it. And I think that more or less sums up what's in this uh, letter, first letter to Timothy, I could take you tonight to chapter 1, couldn't I? We could look at the role of a pastor and a teacher uh, teaching um, the word of God to the people of God in contrast to the false teachers who are invading and seeking to corrupt and undermine and destroy the church. I could take you there tonight. I could take you to chapter 3 and the principles and standards of godly leadership. That would be... uh, on another occasion. But I'm going to go tonight to where we've just read from chapter 2. And the thing I like about this chapter in particular, and this has been reflected in all the readings and songs thus far, which is always helpful when you feel that, isn't it? That the Lord is at work and he's taking the threads and he's weaving them together. It's lovely when you sense that. Because the emphasis here, very much so, is on all the members of Christ's church being involved in ministry and in two basic ways through how we worship that's our first point 
and then how we relate to each other, our second point. I know this is very simple and very basic. I, I, I try not to tie people up in knots. I know I can do that very well. I want to keep it as basic and as simple and as straightforward and as following the text as we go through it as I can because I find that that's where the maximum blessing uh, is, is to be found. So should we take those two simple little headings tonight? Are you with me? Um, firstly, verses 1 to 8, the priorities of public worship. The priorities of public worship. Now, when I, I go back to my experience there uh, joining f- Facebook, and uh, mostly I would say that was a positive experience. But during that time of lockdown, it, it was a time where not just our society, the whole world, was going through seasons of great turbulence, great uh, anger, great divisions in society. I'm thinking particularly of the whole BLM movement. And I noticed that some of my friends, some were new, but you know, some were people I knew already, that some, some, of, the, some of the people on Facebook, I really got the impression that they'd sort of gone bananas as a result of all of this. Certain political events, certain personalities that were dominating uh, the headlines. And the response, now most, most of the people that I know on Facebook are, you know, um, Christians in, in churches and so on. The response at times seemed to be totally out of control, very dis- disrespectful, And it was so bad with one or two people that I thought I would actually have to unfriend them. That's that's a terrible thing to do, isn't it? You know, to uh, delete delete them. And and you, you just can't tolerate what they're throwing at you anymore. I thought I might have to do that. And some of these people were ministers and church leaders. Well, I think the Bible couldn't be clearer what should be our attitude and response to the secular world all around us, whatever's happening. I could take you to Romans chapter 13. I could take you to Titus chapter 3. The keynotes there are submission and respect. Here in 1 Timothy 2, what's the keynote in the opening verses? Of course, It's prayer. Prayer. Let's just read it again, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And how should we pray? Almost every word in the Bible for prayer is in that verse. It's telling us, how we should pray. haven't got time to dig into each word, but you should look that up for yourself. Think about that. There's no one way of praying. It's multifaceted. Many aspects, many words are used. Most of them are in that verse. How we pray. Who should we pray for? Well, we're told, aren't we? Basically, it says for kings, all those in high positions, 
in other words, the secular authorities, the powers that be, those that have the rule over us. At this time, that was the Caesars of Rome. Have you heard of Emperor Nero? Pray for him. That's what Paul is saying to these believers in Ephesus, part of the Roman Empire. At that time for us today, presidents, prime ministers. We've, we've got our latest one now. I hope he'll stick around for a while. The royal family. We've got to pray for them. And why do we need to do that? Look at the end of verse 2. That, or so that, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So that we might be free, unfettered, to live out the gospel. The importance of what we might call the gospel life. So that then authentically and meaningfully we might proclaim the gospel. Verse 3. And following. And just in case you'd forgotten, my friend, what that gospel is, he's going to remind us again, verse 3, isn't Paul always doing that? He can hardly talk about anything. He can hardly deal with any issue, subject under the sun, without bringing in the most important thing of all, the gospel. And in these verses that follow, it's one of the greatest statements of the gospel in the whole Bible. Because that's the context for prayer, real prayer. No greater context for, for praying than when you remember the gospel. And that is the greatest motivation for evangelism. Whether it's me going out on the streets or you having your special service and, 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 and uh, lunch from time to time, we've got to stick at it. And the greatest thing that gets us going gets us moving and keeps us going is to be reminded of the gospel itself. Of course, of course. I know this is so obvious, so basic. But I just need to remind you of this. I need to remind myself of this. And these wonderful verses, I, we could spend weeks on this. You could preach a sermon on every verse here. Brother Henry, maybe you will. Maybe I'm sure you have. Let me just give you a few of the highlights here. Verse 4, God our Savior, it says, God's universal heart of love, who desires all people to be saved. The universal love of God, the heart of God. Verse 5, the uniqueness of this one God. There's only one God, true living God, my friends. The one God, unique, glorious. All that the Bible says about him from Genesis to Revelation. There's only one God, unique and glorious, and only one mediator between man and God. It says then in verse, verse 5, it goes on to say, and of course, to be that unique mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's got to be fully God. He's got to be fully man in one unique divine person. That's who he is. That's what it says. 
And then verse 6, the cross. Just a few verses. And all that's crammed into this gospel, 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 who gave himself a ransom for all. Now, did you notice that word again, all? Do you notice how many times he uses this? Emphasizing universality. Not universalism. We don't believe that, do we? We don't believe everybody's going to be saved and go to heaven. Well, I hope you don't. You don't believe that, do you? But we do believe in a universal gospel because God's love is, has this quality of universality about it. And the use of that little word, all, again and again and again. I rather like those uh, signs on the side of the church building here about equality. I don't know who's responsible for putting those together and putting those up. I like those. And in so many of the texts there, the word all is there. And we're all equal. We're all equally created in the image of God. We're all equally fallen in Adam and under the judgment of God. We're all equally deserving of, of hell. But we're all e- equally got the opportunity to hear the gospel and go to heaven. That's what he's saying. The universality of the love of God in the gospel made known through Christ. And my friends, if we really know and really believe this unique, glorious gospel, then like Paul, what does he go on to say? I mean, I know he's unique and I know he has a unique calling, he says, as, a, as an apostle and so on and so on. But look at his passion. Look at his heart. He's an example to us. Look what he goes on to say. He says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. When you've got this gospel in your life, in your heart, you've got to give it away to others. You've got to share it with all people, or as many as you can, everyone around you, as much as you can. You're doing that, my friend? When was the last time you really sat down with someone and in love and with truth shared the gospel of Christ with someone? When we forget the gospel or when we lose contact with the gospel, that, that, that's going to ebb away as well. We've got to share But to begin with, verse 1, we've got to pray. We've got to pray. And these are the things that must fill and dominate and lead us in terms of our worship. It's, It's been happening in this service here tonight in a very obvious and wonderful way. As we come together as the people of God... As we come to worship, as we pray, as we hear God's word, as we sing his praise, as we function as that royal priesthood and that holy nation. Yes, yes, we go out into the world to do that. But it begins in here with the precious and powerful word of God. And then then he just closes off this little section, again talking about prayer. Verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I had to say this then to some of my 
Facebook friends who came across to me as being so angry, so disrespectful, so divisive. I had to say to them, well, come on brothers, come on sisters, if we all spend a bit more time praying, praying for the world situation, praying for our leaders, praying for what's going on in society, maybe there'd be a little less anger, a little, le little less division out on the streets. Well, at one stage there were riots happening all over the world, weren't there? Out on the streets, in politics, and even in our churches. My friends, prayer. Of course, private, personal. Of course, in our families. But coming together, praying, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. That's the first point, verses 1 to 8. Priorities in public worship. Let's move on to the second point which is principles of relationships between men and women, verses 9 to 15. Uh, a few years ago, um, I was involved with an organization called Veritas. I'd be very surprised if you'd heard of them. They come from South Africa uh, originally. At one stage, I was working with them a little bit, as well as being pastor of a small church. Um, that seemed to be the right thing to do. And I ran some of their courses, which were all about how to study the Bible for yourself. Principles of how to interpret scripture, really. And uh, within that course, one thing I found extremely helpful, probably the main thing I, I, I took away from doing it, was the distinction that we often need to make in studying the Bible between what this course calls, anyway, on the one hand, relatives, and on the other hand, absolutes. Now, the relatives, nothing to do with anti-flow coming around for a cup of tea or something. The relatives uh, are those things which, as we read the Bible, they are relative in the sense that they relate to that time and place in which the Bible was written. They are things of a cultural and historical nature, not necessarily to be repeated or taken literally today. They literally happened then, but not necessarily to repeated um, literally today. There are things like that in the Bible we might call relatives. But then there are things in the Bible we would call absolutes, things that, you know, ju just are so simple, so straightforward. The commandments of God, the instructions of the Lord, there they are on virtually every page, and they just come straight to us. Every age, every time in history, uh, we take it literally, and we are to obey it fully. But while it's important, and we'll see that in this text, uh, the second part of 1 Timothy 2, while it's important to have that sort of discernment when we're studying Scripture, the difference between relatives and absolutes. Even when we think of the ab think of the relatives, let me get it right. Think of the relatives in the Bible. Even those things that we might say are cultural, historical, um, specific to that time, that place, and so on and so on. Even those things 
are in the Bible. Even those things are part of inspired sacred scripture. And even those things have been placed there within the Bible to illustrate an abiding principle and to teach us uh, thereby. Let me give you uh, just one little example before we come come into the text here specifically one that we used on the course you know that text in John 13 verse 14 uh, the Lord has just washed the disciples feet and then he says and he says uh, blessed are you if you do the same you've got to wash one another's feet he says to his disciples now some churches today even in the western world they would take that quite literally even the physical aspect of that command. But it seems to me that is the relative part of it. It might be relevant in some contexts, in some cultures, but the real point of the command is not that we, we now you know, get bowls of water out of the kitchen, we all start washing one another's feet. We don't really need that in Poplar today, do we? You know, is that, is that your pressing need? Well, if it is, let me know, and I'll try and help you later, or Brother Henry will. The, the point of, of what the Lord was saying there was rather the absolute, the principle uh, at the heart of that, bound up in that, which is, I think, this. That we are to love one another with the love of the Lord Jesus, a humble, serving love. And like the slave in the Middle Eastern home of that time, that means we are, we are to be prepared to do the dirtiest job of all. Now, the funny thing about washing other people's feet, yes, in some contexts, in some parts of the world, maybe that still applies. But mostly in the Western, modern Western world in which we live, it doesn't apply. But maybe what is the application of the principle is, uh, well, who's going to clean the toilets? Who's going to put out the, the bins? Who's going to arrange the chairs and lock up after the service? So by being too obsessed about the, the kind of literal um, externals of a, of a command, we can be led astray there. We have to understand certain things are uh, relative, but even those things within them, they have a deep spiritual principle, an absolute that we can learn from. I think we need that kind of discernment as we come to 1 Timothy 2, particularly verses 9 and 10. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good Works. Now, it might be helpful to know that this church that uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to, Timothy is the pastor there, is in Ephesus. There it is in chapter 1 and verse 3. And you are probably aware that in this very major city of the ancient world, there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana. And if you want to see a chunk of that, then come with me to the British Museum sometime. There's an Ephesus room uh, in there, and bits of that very temple 
uh, are there. And this was one of the greatest buildings ever built, but it was really a massive satanic cult. It was a shrine to the feminine goddess Diana. And within that complex of, uh, of buildings, because it was more than one, there would have been hundreds of shrine prostitutes. That's how the religion was administered. And uh, we know all about the details from ancient archaeology and, and, uh, and other sources. And they had a very distinctive way of looking, of dressing. They had these very extravagant hairdos, massive amounts of uh, jewelry hanging from their hair, and so on, and so on. So in this culture, at this time, uh, some of these women were coming under the influence of the gospel. Some of them might even be in Timothy's church. And they've brought all of that with them, as we, as we naturally do when we're saved. We aren't instantly transformed in all respects. So these women have come into the church dressing like this. And Paul is saying, here's the point. To continue with those things would be totally inappropriate. Now the point for us today it's not so much the size of a woman's hairdo. <laughs> it's not so much the, the, the amount or the extravagance of the bling that you're carrying with you. The point is, what is appropriate? What is the right thing to do and to be in this context, in this culture, today? And you can see from those words there, verses 9 and 10, Aspects of that are relative. I think that's to do with the hairdos and the jewelry and all of that. But aspects of that are absolute. It's really to do with holiness, isn't it? Having respect, modesty, self-control, good works. That's the point uh, underneath, underneath it all. For the men, the whole point of holiness was, verse 8, that they should not, what does it say, verse 8? Yes, they shouldn't, as they pray, they shouldn't have anger or quarreling as they pray. Now for these women, as they come into the church, saved from a pagan background, there's to be these qualities of submission and modesty and aspects of that old life stripped away, taken away. And to find what is appropriate in this context. What is holy? What is pleasing to God? And what is for the good of the unity and the encouragement of the saints as we gather together? And as men and women relate together. So it's not so much uh, to be taken literally. There is a deep spiritual principle to be discerned here, but it can be applied practically. I think of a number of situations I've been in over the years, in fact, one in particular, of a young lady who was a pianist who was involved in the worship uh, in the life of the church, and she, was just, she, she just dressed like all her 
contemporaries did. And um, she came into church and she was very willing and very able and we appreciated her. But it was not appropriate the way that she dressed. It, it was just too, too revealing. I don't want to go into any details, but you, you know what I'm trying to say. And, um, and it wasn't helpful. And, and, and one of the sisters had to just have a little word with her and say, you know, this, this has got to change. This isn't going to help the church. It was an issue of holiness. It was an issue of how men and women relate to each other in a holy way within the fellowship of the church. What is appropriate in this context, in this culture? Now, let's move on to just finish off with those final verses, which in some ways are some of the most difficult uh, in the passage, perhaps in the New Testament. And what makes this so difficult is that some people then, they go on to say, well, yes, and we can approach these verses in the same way. Verses 11 to 14. We can say, these, these teachings here are also relative and cultural. And so we can, you know, we, we can keep them at a distance and we can just sort of develop and do our own thing in the light of our own culture today. But I don't think we can do that now at this point because we move beyond cultural, relative, historical issues to something where Paul says what he's going to say now is grounded in creation. Just look at that with me. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now we go back to Genesis and the opening chapters of Genesis, and we find there that... Um, uh, we, we are the image of God, male and female. There is equality. There is partnership. But also there is hierarchy. And there is headship there as well. And that's exactly the point of verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then we move on to see that what he says is not a relative, it's not just a cultural thing for that moment, that time, or even in the past of our own society. Actually, this is rooted in the realities of creation, on the one hand, and also fall, the fall. Verse 13, 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's why he's saying that a woman should not be a public teacher in the church, should not be a leader, should not be um, a pastor in the church today. One of the, one of the things that, uh, towards the end of the lockdown, that some people were getting excited about, I, I, I wasn't myself, but it hit the headlines that they had an, a special edition um, or episode of the Vicar of Dibley on the BBC. And everybody, did you see that? Everybody's getting excited about that. And in a society where that sort of person, that kind of setup, you know, she is a kind of national treasure. 
I'm not surprised that a passage like this is going to be difficult. It's going to be considered to be antiquated, and in fact, much more than that, offensive, and some would even say this is evil. This is oppressive. This is sexist. Well, my friends, the, the Vicar of Dibley is fine for the BBC. But in Christ's church, verse 11 is a command. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12 is a prohibition. I do not permit a woman to teach, and so on. And these things are not relative. They're not cultural. They are rooted in creation and fall. And in the new creation of the church, God has given us that image which is being renewed and recreated, echoing the original Genesis account and completed and uh, glorified in Christ in the new creation. So we have to take this very seriously. I wouldn't be surprised if there are folk here tonight who say, well, I find this very difficult to stomach. I find this very difficult to accept. I've had that in my own church. But it's there in black and white. And I'm trying to give you the arguments to, to, to get to grips with this. But maybe, maybe this is like a first strike, where you think about it, you go away, you pray over it, and you think, well, what is God actually saying to us, to, to God's church, to his people today? Verse 15 finishes with this very strange verse where it says, yet she, the woman, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And I have to confess that I, I, I need to, to, to lean on someone else to help me here. And um, when I was doing these little studies with this uh, church without a pastor, I found particular help in this um, the message of 1 Timothy and Titus by John Stott. I don't agree with everything that he says, but on passages like this, he's particularly helpful and illuminating. He acknowledges verse 15. He calls it a rather ambiguous verse, difficult to understand. I, I think I agree with that. He says that there are three basic ways of understanding this verse. One of them is that the woman will come safely through childbirth. Well, it can't really mean that. Many women don't, do they, down through history? So it doesn't really mean that. Women do die in childbirth. The second interpretation is that women will be saved through motherhood. That is, by accepting that vocation from God. But again, that's not true of all women, of course. So, so the third understanding uh, is the one that he says is the most likely. I just want to read to you what he says because uh, there is a definite article in this verse through the, the childbearing. She will be say, saved through the childbearing. 
And it could be translated through the birth of the child. It could be a reference to Christ. And I, I think this is probably the most likely. Let me just read this to you as we finish. By this rendering, saved has a spiritual connotation. Through is the means by which salvation comes, through the child, through Christ. And the definite article before childbearing in the Greek sentence is explained. Above all, this interpretation commends itself by its extreme appropriateness. Earlier in the chapter, the one mediator between God and man has been identified as the man, Christ Jesus, who of course became a human being by being born of a woman. Further, in the context of Paul's references to the creation and fall, recalling Genesis 2 and 3, a further reference to the coming redemption through the woman's seed, recalling Genesis 3.15, would be most apt. The serpent had deceived her, the first woman, her posterity will defeat him. So then, even if certain roles are not open to women, and even if they are tempted to resent their position, they and we must never forget what we owe to a woman. If Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, there would have been no salvation for anybody. No greater honor has ever been given to woman than in the calling of Mary to be the mother of the Savior of the world. So that second section of 1 Timothy 2, principles about relationships between men and women and the ordering of ministry in the local church. This is what I've been looking at tonight. What did I call it at the beginning? F-F-M. Firm Foundations for Ministry. And it all comes back to the gospel. Even prayer. Not all prayer is prayer. Not all prayer is acceptable to God and, and he will hear and bless and answer. But gospel prayer, the kind of prayer in the opening verses, he will. Gospel relationships. That's what we've got in the second part of the chapter. Our relationships between men and women shaped, molded, defined, directed by the gospel. That's what we need more than anything else in the church today. And then we could move on into chapter 3. I did, as I was teaching this series with this little church on Zoom over the lockdown. And we went on to talk about gospel leadership in the church today. But of course, that's, a, that's another sermon for another occasion. Amen. Well, let's sing as we close. Five, six, eight. Five, six, eight. Just reminding us of our calling as the people of God. Church of God, elect and glorious. Five, six, eight.
8.